Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron, and my co-host is Kate Lurie. Our guest today is Dr. Kim Tallbear, and today is our second episode with Kim. In the first, she told her life story, and this episode gives us an opportunity to unpack and ask questions about her powerful life. Here's a bit more about Kim. Kim Tallbear is a professor of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. She is a Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience, and Environment. Dr. Tallbear is the author of the book Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging, and the False Promise of Genetic Science. Building on her research on the role of science in settler colonialism, Tallbear also studies the roles of the overlapping ideas of sexuality and nature in the colonization of indigenous peoples. She's a regular commentator in international media outlets on issues related to indigenous peoples, science, technology, sexualities, and non-monogamy. She's the co-producer of the sexy storytelling and cabaret show, TP Confessions, and a regular panelist on the weekly podcast, Media Indigena. She's a citizen of the Sisseton Wapaton Oyate in South Dakota and is descended from Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma. She tweets on these topics and more at Kim Tallbear and at Critical Poly. Her research websites include indigenoussts.com and re-labca. We'll include these links in the show notes if you miss them. But before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply podcast is not therapy, nor is it a replacement for therapy. And please know this episode has themes of sexual and emotional abuse. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call a friend, a therapist, or an emotional support hotline like 800-273-TALK, which is 8255. So, Kim, the purpose of this podcast is to reveal truth through life storytelling. Usually with storytelling comes personal truth, but it can also reveal truth about culture and our history. And in your case, your insights related to your intersectional experience as a Dakota, being non-monogamous, and being a woman reveal some of the most crucial truths needed for our culture to heal. And that's why having you on as a guest now is so important. In my opinion, your voice as a thought leader is creating one of the most powerful and important weaves in the tapestry of our growing awareness. So are you ready for our questions? I'm ready. All righty. So going back to, um, you know, in the past episode, you talked about as a toddler at, at three years old, you talked about having a dream of being a queen on a throne to cope with a house full of screaming babies and, and a stressed out mom. And I'm wondering, um, how has the use of your imagination changed over time? And how does your relationships, especially with Dakota indigenous people, interweave with your creativity 
and imagination now? That's a really good question. I, you know, throughout uh, probably the first 25 or 25 years of my life, uh, or maybe the first 20, I very much lived in the future and in my imagination. And I don't know if we talked about this on the last episode, but I was so anxious to get out of the country and, you know, rural South Dakota uh, and off the reservation and move to cosmopolitan cities. And I thought from pretty early on about going east and going to university, I suppose a pretty typically upwardly mobile fantasy. And then later, very much later, come back to realize that I'm so grounded in the prairies. And I know we can talk about that more later. But you know, as I've grown older, and as I did a lot of the things that I wanted to do, and, and even ended up on a much kind of longer and more circuitous and even interesting journey that I plan to go on, I no longer live in the future. I mean, it's enabled me to much more live in the present. And I've also built a life, you know, in many ways that exceeded what I imagined. And I, I have learned too. I, I, I have a strong and deep need for quiet and order. And I think a lot of that comes out of my childhood as well. And uh, a lot of the chaos and, and that's probably just an individual personality thing, right? Some people really love noise and chaos and people around, you know, even my family members who grew up in a similarly colonial environment. So I don't know how much of that is just my own individual kind of orientation. But it's interesting to live more in the present now and maybe not have my imagination carry me through the days as much as it used to. So yeah, I don't know if that's uh, getting at the question or not. Yeah, I think it is. It sounds like you've, through your imagination, you've manifested the reality that you strived for. And now you're just being present in the world and the life that you dreamed up. Right. I'm trying to. I mean, I think that's been one of my challenges is, I think I said last time, for example, you know, anger spurred me early on to do things in my life, right? At, at one point in my life, it was productive. It's no would no longer be productive. So I really try to keep anger at bay and channel my emotions into more productive for me and for others avenues. And I think the same is true of always living in the future. That was probably a good thing in many ways when I was younger. Now that would not be such a good thing. I have a arrived at a really great place. And um, I think when when this gets at a, another, um, another idea, I've arrived at such a good place that one of the other things I have to try to keep under control is my flight mechanism. You know, when you grow up uh, in a colonial chaos, you learn to hope or imagine that the grass is always greener somewhere else, right, as a way to get through the, the current crisis and struggle. But when I have arrived at the place I have in my life where I have so many good things, right? And where I'm not living constantly in fear of, you know, the kind of, you know, sometimes poverty we lived in when I was a child, the lights getting turned off, getting evicted, having to move in the middle of the night. None of that is my reality anymore. Although that said, we could all be homeless tomorrow. I mean, it's not like I feel I will never feel totally safe from uh, a descent into poverty because in a sense, I grew up that way. And I think that's hard for those of us who, who grew up like that to get over. We maybe never feel secure. Um, but I'm as secure as I can ever imagine feeling given, uh, you know, where I am professionally and and the, the life that I've been able to have. So uh, now I try not to fly. I try to, st I'm trying to stay put. And I'm noticing that I'm having to really develop some new skills to stay put and not just run off to the next thing. Because that, that has been really tempting to me for a long time, run off for the next better job, the next place. And I'm trying not to do that, to realize, wow, this is really great what I have and I should stay put. Well, you bring up an interesting 
point. When I follow the thread of what you were saying, it almost sounds like, you know, well, it makes me think about when is imagination constructive and when is imagination just dreaming up flight away from your circumstances in a way that's not constructive, mm-hmm. you know? And it sounds like at this point you realize, you know, I, there's so many thought leaders that feel that just being present in the here and now is one of the secrets to happiness. And when, especially when you find yourself at a place where you're content and, and you've gotten your needs met, mm-hmm. yeah, I, why, not, why used... not have gratitude for that by being present? Right. No, and I'm not used to being content. This is a new thing for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm really trying to, to adjust to it. It's, it's not, not been an easy thing to adjust to, actually. On that note, just briefly, there's a great book, but it's about positive affect tolerance. It's the big leap. That's what it's called. It's called the big leap. And it okay. talks about building positive affect tolerance so that you can tolerate your best life when it happens, or you can tolerate good things when it happens without sabotaging or running away, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, I need to read that. (laughs) Yeah, I wrote that down. I also need to read it. It's funny when you were saying that I thought to myself, I recently just started a relationship with a new therapist and they're, you know, how are things going? And I was like, Um, I'm actually happy. And exactly. I've never done that. And I don't know how to, you know, <laughs> so I can relate. <laughs> so you brought up just a few minutes ago, the prairies. And also in our last conversation, you talked about your need to be on the prairies and your need to be surrounded by a lot of indigenous people there. And it sounds like that's where you really feel connected. So I would love to know more about one, the connection you feel there and what that does for you. And then two, along those same lines, more about how you feel what happens to a person or even a family or even a whole culture that becomes cut off from a true connection with both humans and non-humans. That's interesting. You know, I I think there might be, that might be a two-part question. I really discovered that, yes, I need to be in a very landscape. The flatness is really important to me. There is nothing more beautiful to me than that absolutely flat horizon. And I know that sounds strange to a lot of people. I, I don't like the mountains. I feel agitated. I feel pushed around going up and down hills. It's just agitating to me. Um, and I can't see as much of the sky. When you live on the prairie, the sky is three quarters of what you see. And the the sky is the real painting. That's the real beauty, right? And, you know, you, you do grow to love the austere beauty of the prairie, you know, whether there's prairie grasses or there's rivers winding through it, but really the sky is where all the drama is. And mountains just get in the way of that. Too many trees just get in the way of that. And so that part is really important to me. And I have a view out of my condo of the river valley in Edmonton. I also need to be near a river. I grew up by uh, the Big Sioux. I grew up by the Mississippi and we went to the Missouri a lot. And so rivers are really important to me. And now I live across the road from the North Saskatchewan River, which winds through the center of Edmonton. And I have that big, that flat prairie horizon in the distance. And I am just so content and so happy every day when I get up and see that. And the other thing is, I should say, it's not like I have to be around a bunch of traditional natives all the time. I mean, I grew up in a family that that had both tradition, like traditional cultural stuff going on. People went to ceremony, people took part in cultural events and all of that. 
I grew up around elders who spoke Dakota, even though my generation and my mom's generation didn't. Uh, so I have an ear for the language and I appreciate all that, but I just need to be around native people like we're everyday people. Like, and this is what I love about Edmonton or a place like Minneapolis, for example, where you have a really visible native population, even though they might be more urban places, right? Native people, like one day I was taking a walk with somebody down into the river valley and we were going down the steps from up on the main road and this young native woman came running up the stairs doing her workout and she had powwow music blasting i could hear it out of her headphones and i turned to the woman i was walking with and i said that's why i'm here you know this doesn't happen to me in san francisco when i'm in edmonton there's a young native woman out doing her hardcore workout listening to powwow music which really makes you run hard right or my post person is native right like it's i just see us around town like regular people living our lives and we're not disappeared from the landscape in the way like when i go to new york the last time i was in new york some person said to me and their total new yorker accent oh there's no i can't even imitate it but there's no natives here anymore you know why i'm like uh <laughs> you know and, and this sort of sense of curiosity about me like i was an animal in a zoo i can't stand that stuff you know when i'm in edmonton it's like oh we're just people here you know we're just part right. of the regular landscape and that's what i like about it and if i want access to the cultural stuff it's i definitely can have that but when i say i want to live in a place where there's a lot of natives it's not not about a need for tradition it's about a need for us to be regular alive people just living our daily lives yeah oh that's wonderful and then you know could you speak a little bit more about like when a person or a whole group of people are cut off from that yeah. kind of connection whether it's human or non-human I have come to realize how much those those kind of formative type of landscapes are for me, right? And, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but I do think when you grow up in a culture that is oriented around a history that narrates the prairie or narrates wherever you are, I talk to Indigenous people from other landscapes as well. I have uh, Kanakamali or Native Hawaiian friends, you know, or friends from the Pacific who are Indigenous, who the ocean is their landscape, the texture of the water, the way that the you navigate across that water, that's so important to them. And I get why they just can't be landlocked, right? They need the, the, the they need the sea, um, and so I think you know when you come. F- and I can only speak about Indigenous people because that's mostly who I talk to this uh, about with about this topic with. It's just so important to, I think, for many of us who grew up in community to be in a landscape that we can relate to the history of our peoples, where we have stories passed down through eons of uh, relation, relating with that landscape. We might have origin stories about coming from a particular canyon or a particular kind of mountain, you know. And I've worked a lot with science so I hear um, this kind of suspicion or dubiousness about indigenous origin stories as if it's just like something in the Bible. And although I'm not a biblical scholar, I don't want to trash that either. But our stories are narrating our co-constitution in those places, right? We emerge as people in those places, even if you don't want to believe that that a particular people emerged out of a hole in the ground in a particular valley, you know, you can still understand that, that what that story is telling you is that they, they uh, came together as a people. Uh, they developed a language and a way of life in intimate relationship with that place. So it is still true that we arise as particular peoples in particular places. And so when you have all of those stories from that history as part of the history of your people, you tend to develop a real sense of being drawn to those landscapes. And I know we could interpret that as sort of individual kind of desires or individual orientations. But for me, I've, I never thought about 
my individual desires, uh, or I thought about them much later. What I thought about first was where are my people from and where do we belong as a people? And then later on, I realized that individually, I deeply craved those landscapes, even when earlier in my life, I thought I wanted to run away from them because of the kind of way that colonization happened in those places. Yeah. So it just sounds like, you know, with that connection, it just comes these just these really just a deep, deep roots to nature and all of that. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. So in a conversation that we had before the first episode of this taping, you mentioned that amongst the Dakotas, an elder or a shaman would never charge another tribal member for guiding them through a plant medicine journey or some or any kind of spiritual journey. Instead, a gift might be given, but it wouldn't be really expected, perhaps. In in contrast, usually white people pay these huge amounts of money to go to a retreat center, you know, in places like Peru and experience uh, ayahuasca. So I'm wondering if you can speak more on spiritual rituals within the Dakotas and perhaps your own spiritual beliefs and practices. I think the contrast would be helpful to people. Yeah, you know, and I don't know how like indigenous people in, you know, South America would feel about marketing their ayahuasca (laughs) ceremonies. I have no idea, right? Um, But for us, uh, yeah, the way I was raised is medicine people, or sometimes we'll call them holy people, will you know, it's you give meaningful things, right, because they have to live in order to do their work. And it used to be that maybe they were, often they'll have another source of income, sometimes almost like artists, right? Like, you know, I think about all the successful musicians, I know many of them have partners that can support them, Mm -hmm. you know, but I think with with like medicine people, yeah, sometimes they do have another source of support. But they also, yeah, we, we will give gifts. Like you can give a, a gift of money or a gift of tobacco or something else, right? But you don't actually pay an hourly rate or an honorarium or a fee for service. That's not how it works. And when people are, you know, saying, uh, producing a ceremony for the masses where they where there doesn't have to pr- be a pre-existing relationship, I think that's when we get really suspicious. So like the medicine person, the medicine man that has done ceremonies for my family in the last 25 years, he's only probably about 10 years older than me. Uh, so he wouldn't have been a medicine man when I was a kid, his dad was and then he kind of be he inherited that. So the medicine man who works with our family, we have a relationship with him, uh, a family to family relationship like we had with his father. So in my culture, in my experience around getting a medicine person to come to a ceremony for your family, it's about long-standing familial relationships. You don't go get on the internet and find a medicine person to, to, uh, at least we don't, (laughs) to do a ceremony for you, right? It's really about relationships. And you know, he he's done naming ceremonies for the grandchildren, for my mom's grandchildren. He, he did one for my daughter. He uh, did my marriage ceremony with my co-parent. They do a lot of different kinds of ceremonies. But you tend to have relationships with those people within your tribe and community, right? It might be more like, I don't know, maybe the relationship you build with your minister if you're an active member of a congregation, right? You don't just go get on the internet and hire a minister to do something. Usually, I don't know, maybe things have changed. But when I was growing up, Christians who went to church, you know, they they have a relationship with a pastor and they'll go and, and request that they do maybe a marriage or something for them. It might be a little bit like that for us. One thing that makes me think of is, you know, in, you know, I'm more used to white culture and, you know, a lot of people telling me, like, say their plant medicine journeys, and they'll talk about the importance of set and setting and, you know, what the atmosphere is like 
will have a huge impact on what your experience is. And when I contrast that to what you're saying, where the medicine man has been in your life, it has always been in your life. And that kind of relationship that builds, that goes way beyond what's done usually, you know, in my world that's yeah. predominantly white where it's just like okay we're just going to try and make the the room nice or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that's the extent maybe of the relationship maybe a few sessions before and after the event you're talking about a whole lifetime right. of creating that invite that experience yeah and i think you know now if i had i wanted to do a ceremony for something i would probably go home and do it because my family has a relationship with this medicine person if i were to need to do something in edmonton where it's cree people and metis people it's not there are some nakota people up here too and nakota is related to dakota right and so i i guess if i had to do a ceremony here i would probably go out to alexis first nation which is a dakota or a nakota reserve 45 minutes from here because they are cultural kin they came up to canada uh or during the Indian Wars. Um, and some pe- my I had relatives come up here too, and then some went back to the US side, but I would probably go out there and, and because they're my closest cultural kin and say, I need a medicine person for this. And I would, uh, you know, I'd have to build a relationship with them, right? You, you don't just go in and hire them as like, you know, fee for service. <laughs> And then I would yeah. be, I would have to act appropriately and, and they would ask some things of me, right? So that's the other thing when you get into a relationship with a med- medicine person, they might ask something of you and you have to decide if you want to do that, right? In terms of, you know, it's it's hard to say, but it, it really is about relationship building and you have to act appropriate and in a certain way. And that's, I think, pretty different, you know, and it's not individualistic, I guess what I was going to say, you know, um, it's not about my own individual journey. If I were going to uh, do a ceremony for something, say, I felt like I was at a really difficult time in my life, and I wanted to maybe start going to uh, sweats or different ceremonies, I would be making a relationship with all of the people in that ceremonial community. Yes, they would be interested in helping me as an individual, but I don't get to just come in and get my individual spiritual like guidance and infusion and then leave they would actually ask things of me they might ask me to contribute to fundraising for a, for different community events or they might uh, say we have this relative who needs help with this are you willing to do that they would draw me into a relationship of mutual obligation and that goes on for a long time right so I think that's pretty different Mm-hmm. That's a huge difference. Yeah, it's like, you know, kind of where the, the non-native watered down gentrified colonized version of what really is. And speaking of colonization, and all the chaos that that's caused, you know, you talked about in our in our last conversation, all of the the intergenerational trauma that colonization has caused. But you also talked about the survival reactions that it initiated and how they aren't necessarily all bad or negative. So, and also within that same part of the conversation, you talked about how when you were younger, you acted like a mini adult or a parentified child by the age of like three. So can you talk more about the byproducts of the chaos of colonization that are both good and bad? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is, and I remember my mom saying this when we had these really bad floods in South Dakota back in the late 90s, and, um, you know, the tribe got really organized and put elders all in hotels and got them out of there. Oh, I, it, no, it wasn't the floods, actually. It was really severe winter storms. And a lot of the heating in the country houses was electric, which is just terrible, right? And it's so cold and people couldn't afford to heat their houses because the electric bills are through the roof. So they ended up bringing elders and people who couldn't afford to turn on their heat into hotels in town. And I remember um, there were also elderly non-native people, elderly white people who were really suffering. And I remember my mom, she's a tribal planner. She was saying, we get, natives really get organized in crisis. And so you see native people actually turning around and helping the non-native people too, because the tribe got so organized. And you've seen that with COVID-19 as well. Tribes in the United States, tribal clinics and healthcare uh, services have been managing their own vaccinations. And they have been getting their tribal populations vaccinated more quickly, like in the state of Oklahoma or in South Dakota. Tribal governments got everybody vaccinated quickly and turned around and were vaccinating non-natives. They were so organized, right? And so, yeah, it's really been, and I'm not at all surprised because when a crisis hits, natives get to work. I think, and but going back to my own personal experience, I think sometimes we get addicted to crisis, right? And when everything is calm and cool, <laughs> Uh-huh. We're like, can I go make a crisis? <laughs> you know, so I think, <laughs> I think that's the kind of the downside of it, right? But uh, yeah, I was really wishing I was in the U.S., you know, to get vaccinated by my tribe, right? But I was up in Canada, so I couldn't, and it, I got vaccinated way later than my relatives on the reservation. I think they were getting vaccinated like six months ago or something, not me. <laughs> so yeah, okay. So this is the next question. So um. There's been a genocide of around 10 million indigenous people in the Americas from what, is that, is that the right number around 10 million? Yeah, I don't know. There's, there's, yeah, there's different estimates. Yeah. It depends on how many people you think were here. Yeah. I've even heard 70 million if you're talking about the Western hemisphere. We, we talk about a 90% population reduction um, quite often over the course of the, yeah, the first maybe three to 400 years. Okay, I wanted to make sure I got that part as accurate as possible. Um, The sense I get is that very few descendants of settlers are able to acknowledge that our ancestors committed such a mass genocide. And as Cornell West has stated, this genocide is our original sin in the United States, you know, um, and in larger areas. Uh, Why do you feel whites have such a difficulty owning our history And what is the best way to be an ally now here in the United States? You know, I think the genocidal history and definitions that we've gotten have really been post-World War II, I think, right? Through all of the, you know, the trials uh, after Nazi Germany and the sort of definitions that the United Nations develops uh, post-World War II. So I think that's our discourse. And it is much of it related to the Holocaust in Europe, which had a finite, which had a beginning and an end, right? Um, I think it was nine years from beginning to end. I think it's harder on one level for people to understand genocide occurring more diffusely over the course of centuries uh, is the first thing. Um, I think the fact that it was somebody else that uh, enacted that genocide or say the genocide in Rwanda, it's somebody else, right? Maybe most Americans don't have to feel complicit in any of that. And in fact, Americans were portrayed as the heroes and and it was one of the heroes in World War II, right? But to um, 
take that definition uh, and bring that over here and adjust that, I think is really hard for people, both definitionally and in terms of internalizing the fact that their own lives on these continents are predicated on indigenous dispossession and genocide. And that's really hard for people. There's also this, I think the individualism gets in the way too for Americans. It's, it's not my fault. I didn't do that. You know, the disconnection from their own history, quite often, I'm not responsible for what they did. Um, the lack of structural analysis, well, maybe your life is structurally made possible by the very fact of genocide and slavery, right, which is part of uh, that. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons for why it's hard for people to wrap their minds around it. The other thing I want to say, too, there's actually a, ge a genocide in the Americas conference coming up next year at USC that I'm supposed to be keynoting if it does happen. It's been postponed two years already because of the pandemic. But one of the things I want to talk about in that keynote is the fact that when we think about genocide in the Americas, indigenous communities often think about the uh, genocide not only of in, of our peoples, human peoples, but we think about our non-human relatives. If you eliminate, for example, bison, you know, from the area of the prairies where my ancestors are from, you eliminate the very possibility for life of people that are whose lives are predicated on bison. Um, you know, uh, there are there are indigenous people in in uh, British Columbia in Washington State that talk about themselves as salmon people, right? Their lives and their cultures and their languages and their practices are mutually shaped with salmon, and salmon are relatives, right? Salmon are persons. So when you eliminate the salmon. When you severely impair the salmon, you're severely um, impairing the possibility of life for people who call themselves salmon people. So when we think about genocide in the Americas, we've got to think about the decimation of our non-human relatives as well. It's not only a human decimation. Um, and I think all of that is just not consistent with a more Eurocentric view of genocide in that history. Yeah. So it sounds like part of being an ally is to really be able to widen our framework and if you if if like in in my case being a white person like trying to expand my vantage point from this this very small lens to this broader lens of incorporating non-humans and and the impact and, and how everything interweaves together yeah i think it's canada day here it's J uh, july 1st which is canada's version of the fourth of july in the u.s which is coming up this weekend i think the most important thing that non-Indigenous people can do, and Indigenous people too, <laughs> is to stop investing your love and identity in the settler state. And, you know, I carry a U.S. passport, I'm, you know, and I realize how much I've been formed by the United States, how very American I am, quote unquote, when I, you know, leave the United States. I realize that. Even Canadian Native people will say, oh, that's so American, you know, <laughs> something that I do. <laughs> but that said, I don't invest my love and my identity in the United States, uh, nor will I in Canada if I get permanent residency here. I haven't gotten that yet. Or if I one day have a Canadian passport, I really think about myself as uh, trying to be a human in relation with other humans and with landscapes and with non-humans. And I really think we need to question, we need to question the nation state uh, as a way to identify ourselves. I think we need to, I think any love we invest in the nation state is uh, making bad relations in the world. So we would be better off investing our energy and our love and our good relational, our good relational intentions into thinking about humans and non-humans as relations. 
I know I've said this better in things I've written than what I'm saying now, but I think nationalism is incredibly violent. And I do not think we should be driving around waving nation state flags. It's just violent. Citizenship is in fact violent. Borders are violent, right? That are that are borders constructed by nation states who stole the land that they're living on. So I think really stop flying those flags. Stop uh, trying to redeem the nation state as ever. It will. They will never be positive, inclusive, multicultural utopias. That is not the case. You cannot build a multicultural, I won't even use the word utopia, you can't build a decent multicultural community on stolen land, on wealth built out of the enslavement of Africans. It's just, it's rotten to the core. We've got to completely change the way we're thinking about how we relate to each other. And that nation state and nationalism is just getting in our way of being good relations with one another. So that's what you can do. Yeah. 110%. I hope everyone's taking in what you're saying right now, because I think everything you just said, it's just such a crucial message. You know, is is if you're if you're a nationalist, there's so many people and and there's humans and non humans that you are just cutting out in terms of who you care about. Yeah, and I'm speaking to liberals as well as conservatives, right? I mean, when, you know, when you'll see a, a quote, unquote, liberal person, or even somebody who calls themselves progressive saying, Oh, you know, the the right, those right wingers, those those Trump Trumpsters are not real patriots. We're the real patriot. There's no good patriot. Let's just stop with that right now, right? I don't care if it's liberal or conservative. Being a patriot is not a good thing. You know, your allegiance needs to be to the planet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh my goodness, yes. Yes. In our last conversation, you talked about how settler sexuality is equated with property. And that as a non-monogamous person, you always come from a stance that nobody is anybody else's property. Can you talk a little bit more about that and dissect that for us? Yeah, I mean, again, I think there's both individual and uh, cultural things going on for me when I say that. Uh, Individually, I react to being treated like property because I got treated like property as a child by over-controlling parental figures. (laughs) And I have erred hard the other way in never treating my child as somebody I should control. But sometimes I haven't given her firm enough guidance, right, Uh, by by being too hands-off. I mean, I think we often overcorrect the mistakes of our parents, right? And I've gone too hard the other way. And I've sort of come back to saying, okay, I need to give, you know, her dad and I have talked about this. We're like, yeah, we were a little bit too hands off with Carmen. We're like, you know, too too progressive or too open or whatever. And she needed firmer guidance in that moment. And so we both learned. So I think I have that individualistic uh, kind of allergy to uh, being controlled and treated like property. But I also was raised in a culture in which you don't try to control people that it's really interesting, like, uh, and I've never really, I think, talked about this out loud before, so I might not be very concise. But I was raised in a culture in which you often teach by demonstrating as much as evangelizing certain values, you know, you demonstrate how people should live, there's indirect ways of communicating lessons to children. We really balance kind of a sense of being part of a collective and responsibility to the collective with having a sense of autonomy about the decisions you make. And when you mess up, well, that's what you're going to do. And it's your responsibility. And, and in a sense, your decision uh, to mess up like that, and you will pay the consequences for that. Uh, there might be a community to help you come back from that. Um, so yeah, it's really odd that I come from a culture that I don't think is overly controlling of children. And yet in my family, I think often because of colonial 
fear because of the fears of the potential violence that awaits a young native girl or woman in colonialism uh maybe my parental figures also uh, erred on the side of too much control because they were worried right and scared about what could happen to me um but it, coming into non-monogamy yeah i definitely bring those uh both a cultural and a personal sense of autonomy but autonomy linked with uh, community relations. Um, so it's not uh, autonomy alone. It's not every individual uh, only belongs to themselves, but it's uh, it really is linked up to uh, communal responsibility. But I think that also kind of syncs well with uh, maybe relationship anarchy or solo polyamory ethics about talking, making agreements, uh, revisiting your agreements, but ultimately uh, a high value placed on individual autonomy. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I okay, think we so, need to do that more. You know, I'm yeah. just really thinking about that, you know, like we have such a propensity to be so individualistic and to kind of live in our own silos and not that connection to community. And we, we need to learn to better balance that in any respect, not just yeah. non-monogamy or our, but in every respect. Yeah. I think too, treating, I know Kate, you and I talked about this off air before we did the interviews. Um, I think treating people like property and trying to hold on to them and treat your partner like a scarce property. You know, I have to get my partner, my true love, the one for me, and then everything is settled and taken care of. There is no cutting yourself off from risk or uncertainty in the world, you know? I mean, we may think that, oh, I feel safer now that I have, you know, the one for me and we've agreed to only have eyes and love for one another. But in, but in truth, you know, you don't know what that other person's going to do and what their needs are. I think when we try to over-control people, we're not allowing for change and dynamism in who we are as individuals and who we might be together. And you might, in a sense hold on so tight that they escape that, right? I've always found that opening my arms and making space for the ones I love keeps them closer than hanging on to them too tightly. So that's kind of my 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 ethos about this. But it does require a sense of, you know, it's funny, it requires a sense of respect for the other, but also a sense of self-reliance and self-esteem. And I recognize that, right? I've had a lot of people say to me who write me letters, I don't know that I have the self-confidence yet to live this way, but I really want to live this way. And I do try to pay attention to the fact that that people are really worried about their own sense of self-esteem and self-worth. And it's a journey to get to that place. So I don't know, like as, but I'm not a therapist or anything, right? So I don't know if that's normal or if a lot of people feel that way or um, but I do try to respect when people say that that they don't feel like they're there yet as an individual yeah I mean just as a therapist that works with non-monogamous folks there's a, so many people who really identify as non-monogamous they want to be consensually non-monogamous but they don't really emotionally they have a lot to sort out to be able to pull it off in a way that feels good yeah no, and I try to remember that I'm a very independent person. I have this personal allergy to control, right? And I don't want to do that with others as well as have others do it to me. So there is a there is a real personal aspect too that makes this a good fit for me. And also when I was really young that I decided that I would never live with jealousy and envy, that I found that a really 
unattractive way to be. And I, it, 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 I just was like, I don't ever want to be jealous. I don't ever want to be envious. That's disrespectful of myself. And so that was something I really focused on overcoming. And I might have said that in the last interview, right? I don't feel like I've totally worked through it, but I can turn it off effectively. So in a sense, that's like a, a, pa- a software patch. <laughs> on my emotions. (laughs) Well, I mean, going all the way back to when you were 20 and you had those, I think you said you had three, three lovers, you know, I mean, it's always been a little bit easier for you than the average bear. And I think there's a lot of folks that are like that. Everybody's different in terms of Mm -hmm. how jealous they get. So for various reasons, you have spoken about how several generations of children have been forced to go to boarding schools or resident schools where you know, indigenous children, where they've been sexually, emotionally, and physically abused by nuns, priests, and Indian agents. And you've mentioned the unmarked graves that have been in the news lately, that to continue to be found near schools that housed indigenous children. Probably a lot of people don't even know about all all of these atrocities. And I'm wondering if you could speak more about them. Yeah, it's always surprising to me. You know, when I was growing up in small town, South Dakota, I thought all these white people in town knew all the history I knew, and they were just trying to save face. And they were pretending like it didn't happen. And then when I grew up and went to university, I realized, oh, gosh, we grew up in the same town. Their great grandparents were were homesteaders, essentially squatters on stolen Indian land, and they don't know, like, it's a combination of not being told about the atrocities that happened in those days, and continue to happen. And also, I think, uh, uh, having to distance oneself from that history in order to feel in order to take up the national mythologies, you know, the US is a moral nation, we were, we were conquering the West, we were moving westward, we were turning unproductive, uninhabited land, all those Indians vanished into productive property, we built a nation, you know, you'll often hear people, uh, white people say, you know, we built this nation from nothing. And black people are like, really? (laughs) Uh. You know, like just the the, for, the the willful forgetfulness is just shocking, but not shocking. That happens with, you know, with both uh, histories of enslavement and histories of native lands theft. So, yeah, so I think it's in, it's the, with the residential schools, as we call them in Canada, or boarding schools in the U.S., native people growing up in both of these countries, because our parents went to boarding school, our grandparents were in residential school. They had siblings that died there that didn't come home, right? Uh, I just tweeted something today. There's a hunger strike going on in some of the prisons in Canada, which have very disproportionately high rates of Indigenous people in those prisons. Uh, People saying a lot of our people are in prison because they were in residential school. You know, multiple generations of trauma and deprivation. And so their hunger striking and because the call from Indigenous people has been to not celebrate Canada Day today. Stop with the fireworks. Stop with the celebrations and your drunken barbecues and and you know take a day of silence for they're estimating there are going to be 10 to maybe 30,000 I think remain sets of remains found at these residential schools indigenous people are not surprised at all how does the the rest of the population stay so ignorant right i think it's a combination of their ancestors literally not telling them this history and they can't believe it when they get proof of it they don't want to believe it of course our schools don't teach this history so i was thinking the same thing too when the pedophile priests out east i think it was in boston and that archdiocese were outed um a while ago and there was so much shock and scandal and native people were like uh we know that that the catholic church is full of pedophiles i mean we have these stories in our family it wasn't always priests it was nuns too and the staff that were working there it was like 
free access, you know, for abusers to these children, because they were essentially not allowed to go home. They they were often not in contact with their families. Uh, you had uh, boys and girls separated from one another. So siblings could not see one another. And then, of course, what happens to the, you know, uh, gender non-binary kids right where there might have there there were traditionally roles for them and ways of talking about um that in many of our cultures right we had more than two genders in many of our indigenous cultures and, and those kids suddenly also get subjected to the violence of gender binarism so there's a lot that happened um that has been passed down through the generations and i don't know what else to say except natives all know and for some reason non for many reasons non-natives are shocked <laughs> Yeah, you know, one thing in my journey to, you know, when I got committed to, you know, when I said to myself, I'm going to make a point to continue to try and wake up, I had this epiphany that, you know, I I just organically was not going to have, like, say, Black friends or Indigenous friends just drop in my lap. I think as, you know, when you're a hyper-privileged person, you're used to things just coming to you, and you have to really... (laughs) It's, I hate to say it, but it's a bit of an epiphany to go, no, you have to actively seek these friendships out or you have to actively seek this information out. Like if you want to learn about indigenous people, you know, the Dakotas, et cetera, in the United States, you need to find out what the hashtags are. You need to start following the hashtags, you know, or else you, it just won't drop in your lap, you know. And and I think, you know, that's that's a part of it, too, how white people so effectively are just completely clueless of things that are right in front of their face. Yeah. So you had talked about the like those those photo op men, how they were abusive to the women and children in their lives because they were abused themselves, you know, by the nuns and the priests and the Indian agents and, you know, the whole deal. So how have the actions of settlers impacted interpersonal relationships between Native people. Oh, gosh, yeah. So I think, you know, separating children from from their parents and grandparents was one of the key ways of doing that, right? And that's what they did. They, they would come in and basically kidnap children from communities and take them to, to schools, and the parents weren't given a choice, right? They could be themselves put in jail for not giving up their children. These were the laws of the land. So uh, children were also forcibly adopted out to white families. This is part of the assimilation project. You can even see little flyers, typed out flyers on old typewriters from the mid-20th century you know, this Indian child is available for adoption. It's just, you know, this is why we have legislation like the American, uh, the ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, that's, you know, trying to combat some of that history. I think about in my own family and uh, elders of mine saying, well, you know, our parents, because if you look back to the first boarding school era, like my great grandparents were born in 1900, 1906, and they were not in boarding school. Uh, My great grandmother was in Catholic school, but uh, lived at home, I think, much of the time. But their children, my grandmother's generation, born in the 1920s, were um, mandatory boarding school. And so my mom's mom. So that generation, I think a lot of them did not learn how to parent, right? They, uh, you learn parenting skills by getting parented well yourself, right? And they, they had that completely taken away from them. They were institutionalized from the age of five years old, sometimes younger. And it was a hard journey for them. Many of them uh, learned how to grandparent. And so that, I think, you know, the, the lack of parenting skills by people who were institutionalized is a real thing. And then 
you know, those generations struggle to repair their relationships with their children. And a, a lot of that, I think they have kind of invested their energy in their grandchildren. So that's all really good. But I, yeah, I think though a couple of generations there where they were mostly in, in boarding or residential school, it was really rough. And that would be my parents and grandparents' generation. But to get back to the men, too, I was thinking, you know, the American Indian movement, because I grew up kind of in the middle of it, I've always had a real pragmatic view of it. I saw what they did on the ground in terms of institution building. We had low-income native housing projects built out of the American Indian movement in Minneapolis. We had what we called survival schools, Heart of the Earth in Minneapolis and Red Schoolhouse in St. Paul, where you had... Uh, language reclamation. There was Anishinaabe or Ojibwe language happening, cultural things happening. Children got fed. There was food there every day for kids. Uh, Children went there who weren't making it in the public school, who were dealing with a lot of racism and also just, you know, family problems, right? They needed much more nurturing than a typical public school could offer. So a lot of that stuff came out of the American Indian movement, right? There was a lot of really great things happening. There were also, you know, the, the men in braids and chokers and leather vests with their fists in the air, you know, the ones you see in all of the media and the old pictures. And their public, I I would call it public intellectual work was really important. But their interpersonal relationships could be quite abusive. You know, I saw a lot of them. I, I, I know how that went. And because I saw both the good and the bad, I've always had a very pragmatic view of these guys. There's a lot of hero worship of a lot of these iconographic American Indian movement men out in the world. And then what you also have, I, especially a lot of indigenous women whose mothers were abused as the partners of some of these men, right, um, are, really have spoken up. Women in my generation were in our 50s now, but we were little kids back then in the 1970s. And so uh, we we have debates now about this, right? Uh, indigenous feminism, I think, is uh, talked about some of the kind of real patriarchal violence in that movement. But because I also grew up I- around that in Minneapolis, you know, I saw men behind the scenes, you know, quieter men, right, uh, who were who were doing activities with children and a, a lot of the women, you know, grant writing and doing advocacy work and starting these these schools and these housing programs uh, were, were doing really important work that provide provided everyday sustenance, housing, food and education for Native people, particularly in the city. So Native people, especially the the Mandan tribe, were known to have rituals called Okipa ceremonies that sometimes included the the human hook suspension, and it often led to visions and all sorts of different things. Well, I'm a member of the kink community, and I know that us, you know, we engage in hook suspensions, and it can lead to, to subspace and all sorts of transformative experiences and altered states of consciousness, etc. So I know you're also somewhat connected to the kink community. And I'm curious to know if you've noticed any crossover between the Native ceremonies and these kink practices, and how, if at all, they've personally intermingled for you. Well, since I am very vanilla, <laughs> I have I have a lot of friends because in the you know polyamory community there are a lot of people that are into kink, right? And so I have certainly have friends, and I've dated people that have other relationships that are kink relationships, and I've been like the vanilla girlfriend. But so I really it's it's interesting. I've met since moving to Edmonton, I've actually met indigenous kinksters, and I think they're the ones that really have to answer those questions because I'm I'm pretty hands off about it because I have no need or desire for um, for that. Um, you know, I have thought about that because uh, I had a friend in Austin, Texas, actually, who did the the hook suspension stuff. And 
yikes, that looks really painful. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but I know by listening, you know, obviously there's some really transformative, I don't doubt that there are transformative things that happen. I don't doubt it at all. Uh, because I know there are transformative moments in some of our ceremonies that would look to outsiders as if they were very, um, painful and sometimes brutal right and i personally for example don't sun dance i don't it's i don't actually have a need for typical spiritual kind of experiences my moments of transcendence come in writing and theory and sometimes performance but again because i was raised in a culture where a lot of people around me went to ceremony and i had access to that and i have been to ceremonies i get the power and the transformation that can happen uh, in the moments of transcendence i totally believe i just don't have a need for it right and the same would be for, I think, probably these moments of transcendence in, in kink practices. But I am actually really interested in what indigenous people who grew up in community also around ceremony like me have to say about some of these practices. And anyway, so yeah, you might want to actually talk to somebody like that. There are people like that. Oh, you just put a research bug in my brain. <laughs> I can give you some contacts. Um, yeah, I'm very curious. Yeah, yeah. So... But I, I would, I just, I would caution people, you know, the only way to have access, I think, ethical access to Indigenous ceremonies is to really have real connections with people in community. And that's just not accessible to most people. So um, I, I would always be careful not to describe uh, any kink practices with like, I would be careful not to appropriate Indigenous terminology. And any, you know, not that I don't think there aren't points of articulation, I'm sure there are, because we are all humans who find power and transcendence in sometimes similar ways, but they might emerge simultaneously uh, out of different cultures and out of different cultural foundations, if that makes sense. So we might right. come from different cultures to similar kinds of practices and similar types of benefits that we get out of it. But I'm just always careful not to appropriate each other's language. That's the advice I would give to non-Indigenous kinksters. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. So it's so you. important. Yeah, so... Our final question is just regarding your next book that's going to come out. I know you have a book coming out on non-monogamy, and I'm wondering if you would be willing to share some of the key concepts that you hope to drive home in your book. Well, the book is going to have chapters that will deal with non-monogamy, but it's uh, right now tentatively called Disrupting Sex and Nature. So I'm really going to take apart the concept of sex and take apart the concept of nature. Um, uh, try to critically look at the way that we treat those as scientific objects, the way that we treat them as objects to be managed not only by science, but also by religious thinkers and by the state. Uh, and they're used to control people and they're used to control the environment. And so I really want to do a kind of deep theoretical interrogation of those two concepts. And then within that, I'll have case studies. So I might talk about uh, my own non-monogamous practice and coming to a new kind of terminology, you know, moving through polyamory, solo polyamory, thinking about in, in concert with relationship anarchy, but eventually what kind of more indigenous language can I come to to talk about these things? Uh, so I might have a chapter like that. I'm probably going to talk about eco-erotics or eco-sexuality. Um, I'm friends with uh, Annie Sprinkle and Beth Stevens, and I've thought really, yeah. I've thought really generatively with them, right? Again, like with the kinksters, Beth and Annie are coming out of a different culture than me. They're coming out of different cultures themselves. But we arrive at this sense of uh, eco-erotic thought. And there are indigenous thinkers who think in terms of eco-erotics. So I'll probably put those two indigenous and non-indigenous modes of thinking about eco-sex or eco-erotics into conversation in one chapter. And then we'll see what, what else emerges. But it'll be a, a, a book full of case studies kind of cohered around a theoretical interrogation of sex and nature, a scientific objects. Ooh, 
I cannot I, wait. <laughs> I know. I'm so yes. reading that book. <laughs> so Kim, thank you so much for sharing your journey and insights with us today. I know in these two episodes, along with everything else you put out into the world, it's all been so eye-opening. And for me personally, it's made me a better human. And listeners, we hope that you will join us next time when we once again dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Barrett.